If you and I were growing up as ancient uh, Jews, Jews of Jesus' day, if you and I were growing up, going to the synagogue, going up to the temple, sitting in whatever their equivalent of Sunday school is, the stories that you and I would be particularly drawn to, or that maybe uh, would, would be um, on repeat yearly, are not necessarily the same stories that you and I growing up in 20th, 21st century America would, would necessarily think to know. For instance, uh, you and I, when we think of Moses and the Israelites, we think of the parting of the Red Sea. But one of the stories that they would have been familiar with would have been what happened afterward, where in the wilderness, uh, God speaks through Moses and, and tells the Israelites of His plan to provide them with manna from heaven daily, bread of life that they needed. Or when we think of Elijah and Elisha, we think of Elijah and Mount Carmel and the pillar of fire that came down and consumed, whereas uh, they would have known about Elisha and that this time, this small little about six verses in Second Kings 4 where uh, Elisha, uh, God speaks through Elisha and, and commands these 20 loaves of bread to be set before these men, and, and they eat until they're full, even though it defies uh, the bread that was there. You see, there would have been this expectation looking for one who is greater than the prophets who have come, who is greater than the prophets who have come, who have spoken about God bringing bread of life, and instead looking for one who would actually be the one who gives the bread of life. And, and knowing that, and, and knowing that background is where Matthew, in writing his gospel, where he directs his understanding of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew, uh, we've just seen at the beginning of chapter 14, John the Baptist is beheaded. There is a shift as we move into this part of Matthew. Prior to this, uh, most of Matthew's gospel has been about what Jesus has been teaching and, and His public teachings, addressing the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, there is a shift now in the gospel of Matthew where He begins to… His teaching and the focus of His ministry is, is on the prep, uh, preparation of His disciples for what they will have to go through as they see Jesus go to the cross for after His resurrection, the ministry they will be entrusted with. And it's, it's in that shift that we come to Matthew 14, the beginning of which we see John the Baptist beheaded. And look with me in verse 12. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples came, took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard, He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by Himself. So here's what's gone on. John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. His disciples have buried the body. They've come. They've found Jesus in around the Sea of Galilee, and they've reported to Jesus. Jesus, John, <coughs> John's been killed. He's been beheaded. Jesus hears the news, and it says he withdrew. He literally removed himself. And when it says a secluded place, Jesus, wherever he's at, he goes down to a boat, and he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee to find a place that is isolated, that is alone, where he can get away. And why, why is He withdrawing? And it's because Jesus, in, in His incarnation, Jesus is truly human. He's withdrawing because the one whom He's been connected to since, since the womb, the one who leapt for joy in the womb, the one who they no doubt had knew each other as, as children, John the Baptist, 
has been killed. There's grief in Jesus' heart. There's, we know from Mark's gospel that, that the ministry load on Jesus has been so much that it's been difficult even to get sleep and to eat. It's been nonstop. And so Jesus seeks to withdraw. So he gets in a boat, he heads, and it says, look at this. But when the people heard this, they followed him on foot from the city. So when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. So here's Jesus. He hears horrible news. He's exhausted from ministry. Now there's grief. He's going to go get away. He takes effort to pull, pull away, and as he takes that effort, people follow him, and they follow him around. And so when he comes up onto the shore, there is a mass crowd, and as we'll see in a little bit, by mass crowd, we don't mean a couple hundred people gathered for worship on a Sunday morning. We mean a mass crowd. Let's try 20, 25,000 people. And they've shown up, and when he sees them, and this is incredible about Jesus, just recognize this with me today, church family, that even in the midst of his grief, even in the midst of fatigue, what does it say? He sees the large crowd. And when he sees them, what is it that stirs? He felt compassion and that idea of compassion. It's a word used only of Christ in the Gospels. And it is this deep internal sympathy and mercy. It is down to the very core inside of your being. Jesus feels deeply. And he doesn't just feel deeply, but the idea of the word is not just to feel something, but it's to feel something that moves to action. We know from Mark's gospel that specifically Jesus' response of compassion is because when he sees this crowd, when he goes up on shore and he sees this crowd of thousands upon thousands, men, women, boys, girls, and we know from the fact that he's healing their sick, there were many in this crowd that were not physically healthy. It says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That he looked out and he saw a, gr a, group of, a group of people who do not know, who do not understand, who, who cannot fathom, whose spiritual leaders have failed them. Sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion and he healed their sick. And this goes on for the day. Because we look at verse 15, it says, When it was evening, and so as it comes to that point where the sun's beginning to go down, the disciples come to Jesus. And they say, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples come with a, uh, a smart plan. They recognize the sun's going down. They're truly out in the middle of nowhere. Hey, Jesus, this is a lot of people. And if we don't get them moving now, if we don't, get them, if we don't disperse them, get them going to the villages, they're not going to be able to eat. They're not going to be able to get the sustenance that they need. Let's send them away. Let's get them headed. Otherwise, <clears throat> it'll be too late. But Jesus said to the disciples, they don't need to go away. You feed them. Can you imagine that moment there? It's been a long day. You weren't anticipating having all these, these people. It's been a long day of ministry. You're already tired. The sun's going down. Hey, Jesus, we need to let these people go ahead and go. And, and then Jesus looking at, at you, just 12 of you, they don't need to go. Instead, you need to feed them. I mean, and realize the, the absurdity of that statement for the disciples. We need to feed them. We don't have any food. We don't have any money. There's no villages nearby to send. Like, what, what are we supposed to do? 
So they said to him, well, here are five loaves and two fish. We know from other accountings come from a small boy. And Jesus said, bring those here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up towards heaven, Jesus blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They, being the disciples, picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Now, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So here's what comes in this moment. They say, well, Jesus, we, we don't have anything. We know from another gospel that when Jesus asks them the question or tells them to go and feed, it says that he did this testing them, the disciples. So the disciples go, well, here's what we've got. We've, we, we, we've done a search. We've got five loaves of bread. We've got two fish. We've got enough food to feed maybe us. We've got 25,000 and you go, well, where's 25,000, Wes? It said 5,000. It said 5,000 men. If we assume that most of those men were married, let's make it 10,000. If we assume that they had three kids, some would have more, some would have left. 25, easy. How, how are we going to feed all of them, Jesus? How are we going to, what's going to happen? And so Jesus says, well, bring, bring me the food. And, and Jesus takes the food and he looks up, tells everyone to sit down. He looks up to heaven, blesses it. And the language there is that Jesus proceeds to just pick the bread. And as he picks the bread, he hands it to the disciples, and the disciples take it out. And the disciples go out, and they stretch, and they start passing out this food, food that never runs out. And every single one of those people there says they ate, and they were satisfied. They were satisfied. They were full. Not only that, but after the disciples picked up what was left over, there were 12 full baskets. Twelve full baskets. And all of a sudden, for people who would have grown up on the stories of God's prophets telling the people how God would provide, have now just witnessed not a prophet telling the people how God would provide, but one who is greater than a prophet providing. One who is greater than a prophet who isn't just saying, hey, manna will appear from heaven or that bread won't but out, run out, but specifically Lord, bless this, and Jesus is the one passing it out. We know that this truth wasn't lost <clears throat> on the crowds that day, because if you flip over to John chapter 6, where John recounts the feeding of the 5,000, when you flip over there, the crowds come back the next day desperate and searching for Jesus. Because <clears throat> he's the one who fed them. He's the one, wow, they recognize and they see Jesus is the one. He is the Savior who satisfies. He is the one true Messiah. He is the one who brings satisfaction in salvation. He is the Messiah. And because He is the true Messiah who satisfies all needs, church family, you and I must know the satisfaction of His salvation. We must know the satisfaction of His salvation. Understand, Jesus is the true Messiah. When you and I walk through this passage, Jesus is not simply another prophet to show up. He's not another religious leader. He's not, no, when we walk through the passage, He's not another religious leader. He's not one of many ways. Instead, we find He is the one. 
He is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the Son of God. He's the created one, the Alpha, the Omega, the promised and anointed one, the one greater than the prophet, uh, the one greater than the prophets, the one who was to come. He is the Messiah. He is the one, the bread of life, as he will say in John chapter 6. And church family, just like he is, he, he shows and demonstrates there to anyone willing to watch that he's the Messiah. So you and I live in a day when the pages of history shout, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. History testifies, the miracles testify, the empty tomb stands today crying out that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and if He is truly the Son of the, the living God, the church family understand He's not just another religious leader. He's not one of many ways, as if He's one way and Allah is another way and the thousands of gods of the Hindu faith are another way, and the non-god of the atheists, the agnostics, are another way. No, if He is the Messiah, He is the only way. He is the bread of life. And because He's the true Messiah, He's the one who satisfies all needs, church family. He satisfies all needs. There is no need that Jesus lacks the power to fill. There is no true need that he lacks the desire to satisfy. Do you see when he looks at the crowds, he sees the crowds sick, helpless, hurting, hungry, and he is stirred with compassion. There is desire to act. Not as there, only is there the desire, but he acts, and he heals, <coughs> and he feeds. He satisfies. He satisfies. And church family, there is a longing on the heart of every human being. A, long, a longing that is set from eternity that cries out for satisfaction and seeks satisfaction in all the various ways the world promises to meet that need. The problem is that which is an eternal longing can never be satisfied by that which is temporal. That which is infinite cannot be satisfied by that which is finite. That longing which is from brokenness can't be fixed by, by feeding off of more things that are broken. No, Jesus being the one true Messiah, Jesus is the one who satisfies that need. He's the one who satisfies that need. You find yourself today with the need for guidance. Jesus delights to give wisdom. You find yourself with, with, a, with a hunger and a desire and a need to be known, to be known truly, to be known fully, to be known in, in all of your weakness and bear in your sin. He's the one who made you fearfully and wonderfully, who knows every hair on your head, whose eyes never turn, who sees you just as you are, who knows your name. You find yourself with a desire and a need to be loved, to be valued. He's the one who became your sin and my sin and went on that cross and took what you and I rightfully deserve. Why? Because in this, the love of God is made clear. Amen. Find yourself today with a need for purpose. Your Creator delighted to make you for a purpose, 
a need for hope. He's the hope of the world. You see, there's no need you and I can find. There's no need of the human heart. There's no need of the human condition that Jesus does not satisfy. And so, if He's the true Messiah who satisfies all needs in church family, we've got to know the satisfaction of His salvation. We've got to know the satisfaction of His salvation. You see, the crowd showed up, and there was a need. There was something that needed to be satisfied. Yes, there were physical needs, healing, hunger. But we know from John chapter 6, when the crowds come back, as mentioned earlier, they come back, and, and their focus is only on bread. And when Jesus begins to transition their focus, when He begins to say, no, crowds, you've missed it. Yes, I can heal, I can heal sickness and injury. Yes, I can feed, but you're missing the real true need. Your great need is not the hunger in your belly at the moment. The great need is the hunger of your soul to be made right with your God. And when he unpacks this and when he tells them, and if you want that right, you're going to have to believe in me, the one whom God sent. And it's going to mean eating my body and drinking my blood. And when the crowds hear that, it is too high a cost for them. And it says they all leave except for the twelve. Understand this, church family. We can say and go, yep, Jesus is the Messiah. Yep, Jesus satisfies all needs. But if we're going to know the satisfaction of His salvation, we have to accept Him for who He is on His terms. Which means, just to be clear, and I, and I try to be clear week in and week out whenever we come to this, you cannot know the satisfaction of the salvation of Jesus Christ if you believe the reason you're saved is because you've done good things. If you believe the reason you're right with God is because of everything you've done in your ledger, because of all the times you've gone to church, how many times you've read your Bible, who your family lineage is, false. There is no salvation in the works of the flesh. Instead, we are saved by grace, received through faith. There is only one way to know the satisfaction of Jesus' salvation, and it is in response to the kind conviction of the Holy Spirit that you and I, by nature, are born sinners, cut off out of relationship with God. And because we're sinners, we sin. And the sin we commit judges us before a holy God and is deserving of eternal punishment, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us and the fullness of time sent His Son who became our sin on that cross, who drank every last drop of the punishment you and I deserve, who died, oh, in church family, who rose three days later, and who is alive and when you and I, in response to that conviction, say, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong, I am turning to you in repentant faith, I am, I am laying the fullness of my being upon who you are and what you've done. That's faith. And that's where God in His grace comes through and saves. That's where the satisfaction of His salvation can be known and his salvation doesn't necessarily mean health, wealth, and prosperity this side of heaven. In this moment, he certainly heals their sickness. He certainly uh, brings <clears throat> relief to their hunger. But understand the salvation he seeks to bring 
Sometimes we will experience good in this world. Sometimes we will experience hardship. But the salvation is so much more beyond that. Seeking to save and reconcile men and women to their God. Church family, do we know the satisfaction of the salvation? You say, well, well pastor, I, I know I've already responded. Uh, I've already responded in faith. I know God has saved me in His grace. Then, then church family, brother and sister, do we really understand what all He's done or are we forgotten? Have we who have the satisfaction for our souls forgotten and instead become entrapped in the hurry and busy and overload of this world, seeking after satisfaction from idols that can never satisfy all the while? All the while, we sit at the table of the king with the ability to know his, sal- his satisfaction of his salvation as we gaze into his ever-wonderful, loving eyes. Do we know the satisfaction of his salvation? But here's what's interesting, church family. That's only part of the passage. The feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels, the only one. Obviously, there was something major about what was there. Obviously, we see Jesus and we see Him as the one true Messiah who satisfies all needs. We hear the clear calling to find satisfaction in His salvation. But there's something going on here that Jesus is trying to teach His disciples. And so it's not just about finding satisfaction in his salvation, but church family, it's about knowing the sufficiency of Christ's power to fulfill the ministry he's called us to. You see, because if you and I are in Christ, if we know the satisfaction of his salvation, then here's what's, here's what's unarguable from Scripture, then you and I have been entrusted with the ministry. Look in the passage, Jesus, Jesus would provide But Jesus called the disciples to be the one to hand out the food. Church family, each one of us, if we're in Christ, we have been called to be ministers of the gospel. Not ministers in a vocational sense as in, well, every person is called to serve full-time on a vocational church staff. That's not what we mean. But we mean ministers of the gospel. There is a ministry each one of us in Christ have been entrusted to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks that you and I have been called to the ministry of reconciliation, that you and I stand as ambassadors of Christ, as those who know the satisfaction of His salvation, who've been called to testify and live out that satisfaction in a lost and dying world that is running around helplessly like sheep without a shepherd, eating whatever they can to try to find satisfaction even I've been called to proclaim this ministry of reconciliation that, that there can be, that the soul can be satisfied in Christ, that there is a salvation for men and women, boys and girls. You and I have been called, not just those who are really good at street evangelism. We've all been called to the ministry of reconciliation. We've been called, Ephesians chapter 4, to a ministry inside of the body of Christ. It speaks about God has, has given prophets and apostles and uh, essentially international church planners and pastor teachers to the church as gifts. God has given these vocational leaders as gifts. For what purpose, though? That the church would be equipped and the church would do ministry. And the church, part of that ministry is to build and encourage and spur one another on. We have a ministry that's out in that world to be ambassadors for Christ. But church family, you and I also have a ministry inside of this family to love each other 
to care for each other, to spur one another on, to hold each other's hands up, to confront each other, to encourage each other, to build one another up. You have been given spiritual gifts at the moment of salvation by the Holy Spirit that aren't supposed to be used for your own personal enjoyment, but to build up the body. Or maybe we think of not just the ministry inside of the body of Christ, but Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, Colossians chapter 4, <clears throat> there is a ministry to our own actual families. We think about today being a day of Father's Day. Whether you're a father or a mother, whether you're a husband or a wife, every one of us in this room belongs to some kind of family. And there's a ministry there. Husbands, God's called you, husbands and fathers, to be the spiritual leaders in your homes. Parents, God's called you to be the primary disciplers in your child's life. There's ministries inside of the family. There is a ministry, church family, that's been entrusted to us. The question is, when we look out at the world, is the world simply a place where we pursue things and dreams? Or is it a place where we fish for people? Is the church a place where we just come and listen? Or is it a family in which you belong and fellowship, a body in which you serve and build up? Are our, our families God has entrusted with us, are they just because that was the next thing to do on society's list of things to do as you grow up? Or is that spouse a precious gift of God to love and serve and honor? Is that child a precious gift of God to disciple and sharpen and shoot out as an arrow. Church family, we have been entrusted with ministry, but we need to understand the ministry we've been entrusted with, just like the disciples were entrusted by Christ to go take the food out to the people, the ministry we've been entrusted with isn't our ministry. It's His. It's Jesus' ministry. This whole miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it didn't come because the disciples saw a crowd <coughs> And they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we got this huge crowd. We got this great idea. What if you, that's not what happened. The ministry here to the crowd, it's, it's Jesus' ministry. Church family, the ministry that you and I have been entrusted to, it's His ministry. It belongs to Him. It means as we do the ministry, we should look like Him. It means we do ministry how he does ministry. This ministry that we've been entrusted to, it, how does he do it? Well, it demands selflessness. Selflessness with our time. Do you realize that when we look at this passage, Jesus heard, verse 13, he withdrew. Jesus' plans that morning were to go rest and grieve. The feeding of the 5,000, the miracle that's in all four Gospels, wasn't pre-planned that day. It was because Jesus' time was interrupted. Are we okay when our daily plans face interruptions? Are we okay when our life plans, our retirement plans, our semester plans, our time off plans are interrupted by the ministry He's entrusted to us? Are we willing to be selfless with our time? Are we willing to be selfless with the giving of ourselves? Understand, Jesus said, feed them. 
How did he feed them? Well, they took two loaves, two fish and five loaves of bread. <coughs> what if the boy doesn't give up the food? Now, yeah, Jesus can handle that. But how does Jesus provide? He provides because someone was selfless. Someone else caught these fish. Someone else baked this bread. Someone else paid for them. And they could have been selfish and hoarded them. But they were selfless, and they gave what they had, meager though it was, to God. Church family, God has wired us, created us, fashioned us. Some of us may think we're awesome. Some of us may think we're meager. That's a different sermon for a different day about pride or humility. But here's the reality. Every aspect of who we are is intended to be selflessly laid on the altar of Christ. So we demand selflessness. It must be done with compassion. We saw this, we, we, we hit this several weeks ago with Jonah. There should be a compassion in our hearts as we look out and see a world lost, dying, hurting. There should be a compassion, a movement to need and action as we look throughout our congregation and see the same people hurting needs. Obviously, some of you, and we're grateful, we're stirred with compassion, and you've brought us food as we've hacked up our lungs at home. There should be a compassion that drives to all people. Did you catch that at the very end? There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. That statement includes women and children. It's, it's abnormal for first century writing, but it's pivotal because in a, in a, in a social and in climate that would have only said, ah, well, there were 5,000, we just count the men. No one, no matter how insignificant in the eyes of society, failed the eyes and ministry of Christ. Amen. In church family, the ministry you and I have been entrusted to is not just to the people that society deems cool. It's not just to the people we feel most commonality with. You and I have been called to a ministry that reaches all people. And understand that because this ministry is His ministry, we need to go about it as if it's all about Him. We don't teach a Sunday school class. We don't lead a small group so that people can like us and say, we did great. We don't, we don't get up and teach a lesson so people can go, man, that person's really great. If I'm up preaching so people can say, wow, pastor, what a great preacher, what a great message, then we've missed it. Ministry is about Christ. We don't make disciples of us, we make disciples of Christ. So he's trusted a ministry to us. We understand it's his ministry, which means it must be done his way. But here's the key. Will we know his sufficiency to fulfill it? When Jesus tells the disciples to feed the people, understand they're limited. They're limited. They don't have enough food to feed any more than themselves. They're limited by money. They don't have enough funds to go and buy more food. They're limited geographically. They're in the middle of nowhere, so there's no place for them to go get more food. They're limited in time. The day is nearing the end, and even if they had <laughs> access to all the food and this and that, by the time they get it all fixed, it'd be too late. They are limited in every way, and this is the message that Christ is trying to help the disciples to see because church family, if you and I know the satisfaction of his salvation, then in that salvation, he has called us to a ministry, his ministry, and the only possible way you and I will be able to fulfill the ministry he's called us to is if we know the sufficiency of his power. Amen. You and I in our own strength, we're not sufficient. You and I in our own ideas, not sufficient. You and I in our own wisdom, not sufficient. 
You and I on his wisdom, sufficient. You and I on his ideas, sufficient. You and I on his power, sufficient. Understand, church family, oftentimes the ministry that God moves and stirs and calls us into is ministry that from our standpoint seems very overwhelming. And that's the point. If you and I look at a ministry and go, ah, it's not overwhelming, it's just whelming. I got this. No. No. We've missed it. We've missed it. First Corinthians chapter 1, he says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you are strong, not many of you, <clears throat> you weren't the people that, that would have been picked. But that's precisely the point because God loves to take the weak. God loves to take the foolish. God loves to take what is not. God loves to take what the world rejects and do wonders. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that you and I are not adequate in of ourselves, but we have been made adequate for this ministry in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 says that you and I lack nothing for life and godliness. Church family, understand, He is sufficient. He is sufficient to provide the power to do His ministry His way. Amen. And the key for us, how do we know that sufficiency, Pastor? What's, what's right there in the text? The ability of the disciples to go out and pass out the food that Christ called them to feed the people with was dependent on their willingness to go back to Christ, to receive what Christ would give, and to give what Christ would give. As we seek to abide in Christ, as we seek to take captive our thoughts, as we seek to rest in Christ, to trust that even if we don't feel capable, even if we feel frightened, even if we don't know how to step into that gap, if it's Christ who's called us to step into that gap, as long as we rest in faith on who He is, then we go. And what we will find is we will find exactly what we need to carry out the ministry He's called us to do. So when that call comes, would you be willing to start a new small group question is not, can you do it or not? The question is, is God calling you to do it or not? If God calls you to do it, then the sufficiency will be there if you rest in Him. When the opportunity comes, understand, church family, here was an opportunity that day to minister to people, and had they turned them away, they would have missed an opportunity to minister to people, an opportunity that in the heart of Christ was a divine moment. There are ministries in our church to minister to people that don't have ministries for them. And if we look at it and go, wow, that's just too much. We don't know how to do that. Wow, that's... We will send people away that God has called us to reach. But the beauty, the beauty of what we see in this passage is Christ feeds the 5,000 church family. God has called each and every one of us in Christ to a ministry. You have a ministry in your home. 
You have a ministry in this church body. You have a ministry in this world. It's his ministry. It's an overwhelming ministry at times. How, how do I lead my family? How do I disciple my children? How, how, do I, how can I even remotely step into that? How can I share the gospel with a coworker? How can I? How can I? I cannot. But Christ in me, the hope of glory, oh, his power is sufficient to enable me to do it. He is sufficient, church family. He says he's with us always. He sustains us. He enables us. Jesus is not worried about the overwhelming nature of the ministry in front of us. Because he's more than a conqueror. The question is, do we trust him? Will we hear his call, go and feed them? And will we abide in him and feed what he gives us to feed? Or will we fall and only do what we see ourselves as having the ability to do? Let's pray. Father, it's far too easy to judge what we can and can't do off of how we feel, off of how competent we think we are. Lord, and by no means does this passage mean that there's not a need for training at times or equipping or, or moments where we need to grow, Lord, absolutely. But at the end of the day, our ability to do ministry is not tethered to how great we are any more than it was tethered to how much the disciples could figure out a solution to feed those people. You're the solution. You're the Messiah. You're the one who brings satisfaction in life. Jesus, our responsibility is just to say yes. It's to abide in you. It's to trust you at your word. When you tell us to bring two fish and five loaves of bread, may we bring you the two fish and the five loaves of bread, God. May we lay ourselves on the altar. And when you say go pass this out and then come back for more, Lord, may we go pass it out and come back for more. Jesus, may we as a church family be every ounce of who you want us to be as ambassadors for your kingdom, as brothers and sisters to each other. May we rest in your sufficiency and may we know the satisfaction of your salvation. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.